Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Jordan Osserman, and today I'm really pleased that we have on the show Jameson Webster, um, and we're going to be talking about her latest book, Conversion Disorder, Listening to the Body in Psychoanalysis, which was published by Columbia uh, in 2018, um, as well as some of her more recent work, uh, including an article she's uh, just published in the New York Review of Books called EndNotes, What Palliative Care Looks Like in a Pandemic. Um, just to remind our listeners, uh, this is uh, the third interview in my series on psychoanalysis and time, produced in collaboration with Waiting Times, a multi-stranded research project on the temporalities of healthcare. Waiting Times is supported by the Wellcome Trust and takes place across Birkbeck and the University of Exeter in the UK. And you can learn more about our project by visiting whatareyouwaitingfor.org.uk. Uh, so just to introduce Jameson, although I'm sure many of you are familiar with her work, uh, Jameson Webster is a psychoanalyst in New York and author of Conversion Disorder, Stay Illusion, which was published by Pantheon in 2013, uh, The Life of Death, The Life and Death of Psychoanalysis, published by Rutledge in 2011. Uh, and she's currently working on a book on Jacques Lacan. She has written often for The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, Art Forum, Cabinet Magazine. Spike Art Quarterly, and in many psychoanalytic journals. She currently teaches at Princeton, the New School for Social Research, and she's a member of IPTAR and Das Unbehagen. So, Jameson, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for having me. Um, so, we were just speaking before we recorded. Um, how are you, and <laughs> what's going on uh, in your world? Um, I don't know if I can say how I am. <laughs> um, the feeling is uh, in the middle of total societal collapse, but I sort of question myself um, whether that's too optimistic. <laughs> A little bit of irony. Um, but I never thought the pandemic would end in race riots. Um, and it's been strange to have tried to keep oneself away from people to only find yourself absolutely forgetting this and pushing into crowds of tens of thousands of people in confrontation with police over the um, murder of George Floyd. Um, yeah. So that's, that's what's going on along with, you know, seeing patients uh, in between these moments. So. Right. So you haven't really been keeping yourself away from people, as uh, I learned in this article you published in the New York Review of Books. Um, can you tell us a bit about uh, about that piece? So you, you write about working in a hospital in a palliative care um, in, in the midst of coronavirus. Um, how, how did that work come about? Um, so I'm a member of the Medical Reserve Corps, uh, which is... Um, a kind of volunteer organization in New York for people with various um, licenses, whether it's EMTs or doctors or nurses or um, psychologists and social workers. 
Um, and I've been a member of the MRC since 9-11, where I also volunteered. Um, and various times they call you up and ask for help. So during Hurricane Sandy. So when the coronavirus um, hit, uh, and it, you know, obviously New York was the center of it, I was checking the website um, looking for whether they, they needed volunteers. And then this one position came through where they were asking for psychologists to come to the hospital and help with um, connecting patients to their families. And of course, the thing that we all understood very quickly was not just the danger that the doctors and nurses were putting themselves into, and obviously without adequate personal protective gear, but also the fact that patients, when they entered the hospital, um, could not see family members because the hospitals were closed. Um, so mm. people were um, alone uh, and, and also dying alone. And, and what was, what's been your role? Are, are, are you still doing that work? And, and what has been your role in that kind of work? So I stopped about a week ago um, because the hospital started dismantling its ICU units. I mean, I think they would have allowed me to stay on and some of the other volunteers that I had um, brought in. But I mean, we could talk about it. I, I just had a kind of really desperate feeling at the end about, um, and a real question about the value of my kind of continued work there. But I had been working there three days a week for about a month, beginning in like the third week of the pandemic. Um, and then as, you know, as as the hospital was less overloaded, I, I sort of pulled back because I was working seven days a week. I was teaching, I was seeing patients and I was in the hospital and I think I was about to collapse, um, at a certain point. And my, 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 my role was to be with the patients there, put them in touch with their families, speak with their families. But, um, probably at the most critical moments was when this work, um, felt urgent and necessary, which was either before they were being intubated around the questions of intubation or at the moment at which they were going to, um, pass or die. It's probably pretty unusual to have a psychoanalyst in this kind of place, isn't it? Yeah, except I love, I mean, my historical attachment to psychoanalysis is the psychoanalysts in these places, in a way. I mean, all of the kind of experiments at Benoit with Guattari um, and, or even Catherine Methelen Vanier, who's the premature baby whisperer in the hospital <laughs> in Paris. So, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of um, veneration for the analysts who leave the consulting room and, and go into the public sphere. I mean, even the sort of the Maison Vert in Paris, the centers for mothers um, of children under the age of five, where a psychoanalyst is always present. I mean, I just, I, I think that there's, this is really important. Mm. I mean, you write really movingly about these um, interactions with families who want to speak to their loved ones who are dying and uh, sometimes are only allowed to speak to them via Zoom. Even uh, you give the example of a woman who's come all the way to the hospital only to be told, um, you know, she can't visit her, her mother. Um, what do you think kind of psychoanalysis brings to this experience? I mean, my attention was to the speech, I mean, to creating situations where these people could speak to another, even within the limited and strange means of telecommunication. I mean, we're all analysts at this moment, 
via Zoom anyhow, and to try to help this happen, to help people speak to one another. And I, I think the psychoanalyst is very careful about that, about the value of words and also like helping, <laughs> helping the speech happen because it doesn't happen that easily for some people. For some people, it's fine. They could um, speak to their loved one, the whole family, you know, would get onto the Zoom call. Um, and I didn't have to do much in that situation, but there were times when it was very hard to say something. Um, mm. And also, you know, I was in profound situations of speech where, you know, for example, a daughter um, did not want to speak to her mother when she was dying because she said that her mother was an angry woman and, and hated her. And she didn't think that it would be any comfort to her mother and to be there to tell her that I understood that and that I thought that she was making a decision for her mother. Um, I mean, analysis pays attention to um, marking what someone is saying rather than let's say norms or rather than, um, you know, sort of hallmark card banalities. And I'm not, I, I don't, I don't think everyone goes in this direction, but I do think that we're trained to, listen to the singularity of speech. Mm. Yeah. I remember I, I was really touched by the example of the family who was calling the dying man who, who couldn't hear um, because he was in a coma and how their kind of uh, repeated calling and crying eventually sort of transformed into them reciting some prayers. Was mm. that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I had a funny moment with myself, which was that I realized that I was looking in a way, maybe just for my own purposes, for eloquence kind of at the end of life. It's like my own question about what happens when you die. Um, and was sometimes frustrated by ineloquence, you know, stuttering, screaming, um, just being stumped, I guess, as to what to do in the face of someone dying that you care about. And then I asked myself a question, like, why demand eloquence at the end of life necessarily? Mm. And I thought about Beckett. I mean, <laughs> Beckett's works are in a way full of the fact that we stumble through speech up until the very end. Um, you know, that, that we fail, that there's no, there's not, there's not like the successful speech act at the end of life. And I don't know that, that, that changed some you know, probably defense in myself against um, what the what the question of death means. Mm. Actually, this kind of touches on the earlier piece that you published as well about sort of what the purpose of psychoanalysts are in the middle of all this and, and questioning whether we're of any use at all. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I was, I was just really alarmed at, in the beginning of the pandemic about the kind of glorification of the role of mental health practitioners. And it's not to say that we're not necessary, that this isn't important or that there aren't going to be important consequences from the pandemic insofar as mental health is concerned. Um, but as many analysts have set, come out to say, I mean, Darian Leader in The Guardian recently, but many others, um, patients are okay in the shelter-in-place order in a way. Um, surprisingly okay. Mm. 
And the question for me, especially in the very beginning before I was working in the hospital, is who's not okay? Who's okay and who's not okay? And it was very quickly a question of privilege, this pandemic was revealing. And, you know, for those who are at home, for those who are trying to stay safe, it's a privileged situation. And and as we know, this virus has affected the less privileged um, much more. And sometimes things can um, wait to be said. Now, that being said, I've obviously continued to work with my patients, though some have um, perhaps wanted to stop or see me less. And the the work during this time has been very strange, very interesting, very strange. Um, It's stirred up a lot in very different ways. It also feels like a very regressive time in which the preoccupations feel very old, actually. Um. But I, I just didn't want to rush to conclusions. Mm. I'm, I'm glad you bring up this, this point about whether things can wait to be said. Um, it's actually something I've been kind of thinking through and working on as part of this project that I mentioned, um, an essay I have coming out that I wrote with a friend <laughs> and colleague around um, the question of waiting in the pandemic and um, the ways in which I suppose at the political level, um, uh, there was this kind of sense of, uh, the, you know, you could say like the big other is is collapsing or the hole in the big other is is more visible. And then this real sense on people, I think, across different sides of the political spectrum saying, well, kind of let's just wait it out and things will reconstitute themselves or go back to normal mm-hmm. one way or another. And um, I think really forcing the question of, uh, you know, what can, can we wait and, um, and what kinds of action can we take, which I think was also sort of some themes you touched on in this, in this later New York review of books piece. Yeah, I was, um, I was very worried about the carry on as normal and also moving psychoanalysis immediately or psychotherapeutic psychoanalytic work immediately on to the whatever zoom or uh, FaceTime or phone and just carrying on as normal. We're just going to move it from the office onto these mediums and we're just going to keep going without really kind of stopping to think about what, what, what was this, what was this going to do? You know, should we just keep going like this? Do we just not acknowledge with our patients how much has changed um, in doing so? And, and, you know, I just, there was such a rush to, to keep going, to keep, to keep going as normal. Like we're just, now we're just going to work from home. Um, and I really resisted this. I really resisted this also because of the political implications of what was unfolding, um, Mm. which has clearly erupted, um, in, in the situation that we now face in the U S, um, with all of the unrest. Mm. You, um, you, you, you do some quite interesting things with time in the essay as well. So you, you, um, bring up the Lacan's kind of prisoner dilemma example. What, what were you doing with that? And and why was that kind of relevant for you? I was actually teaching that essay, um, right. As the kind of pandemic broke out. So I, I, one of my, it was either my first or second zoom teaching for my class on Lacan at the new school for social research. So, um, you know, when you, when you read to teach, you read in a particularly focused way and it just seemed, um, so apt with the pandemic because 
Lacan breaks time into three moments. He has the instance of the glance, he has the time for understanding, and then he has the moment for concluding. And he believes these to be a kind of logical, subjective, intersubjective process that has a lot of bearing on how psychoanalysis thinks of time in the unconscious. And it wasn't, you know, in, in, in this moment that I read it, it wasn't simply the questions that he's bringing to bear on how to handle time and analysis, but it was also the time of the pandemic itself. And, you know, of course, whenever you think of the plague, time comes up, love and time. <laughs> it's like the, the endlessness of this Borges title that's been recycled um, over and over again throughout the pandemic. But somehow this question of love or the question of the other and the question of time condensed around the question of illness. You know, whether it's about bringing the mortality and time to bear in life in a way that makes that more visible than it otherwise is. And the idea that I just, you know, kind of wanted to play out in this article was that from the moment of the glance, when you, you looked at the other person and you see what's going on with them and what does that mean for me, um, that a whole process is initiated. And that this was like us looking at Italy and looking at China and saying, mm. you know, wh what's going to happen here? And what does this mean about me? And also how you want to get away from this question. Well, this isn't, this doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> That's their problem. This isn't my problem. And there's a lot of failure at that moment around the question of asking what it means for oneself, which is what was happening in the U.S. Like we couldn't get our heads around the fact that this was, we now know already here. Right? It just seemed like a problem over there. Once you realize that you're implicated in the problem, then the question is looking at the others around trying to understand the situation, but not knowing when to act. So all of the hesitation, all of the kind of competitive looking at what the other is doing, all of the kind of half assertions that are made, and then the sort of walking it back. And Lacan calls this the time for understanding. And one of the things that he says that's interesting is that this could go on forever. That we could try to understand and understand and understand and understand and really fail to act, um, which we certainly see play out throughout this pandemic. I mean, it's, it's a series of basically failures of action. Mm. Um, and this is something that's shared across the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, in slightly different but still similar ways. <laughs> Yeah, right, which is also why we have the highest death tolls. Um, and we know what happens, you know, had we not waited two weeks longer, we know the number of lives that that would have saved. I mean, in the, in the time here where you, you, you know, you're, you're in the middle of a time where there's the question and then retrospectively you keep understanding what you did not do. So, so would you say that these failures are are characterized by a kind of paralysis in the in the time for understanding? Absolutely, absolutely, and this um, kind of intersubjective loop um, that Lacan is saying that we get caught in, where the action has to be an action that's taken in a way alone, which is the question of leadership um, and an understanding of interdependency rather than this like kind of will towards autonomy against the other. And we both, one, don't want to understand our interdependencies, um, and we also have no leadership at this mm. point in time. Um, and so I think that that's really the failure, and it's something that he's talking about. And he's also, in, 
talking about also in reference to questions of group psychology and or mass psychology. Um, and the question of the moment for concluding is really the moment in which one extracts oneself from either the quest for an understanding that's going to justify action or an action that's irrevocably tied to and against others. For Lacan, it's this moment of separation and extraction that he believes is a real kind of, um, it's, a, it's an act, um, and, but it's also rare, <laughs> interestingly enough. I mean, it, it's rare and it's difficult to do. And he says that the psychoanalysts above, well, you know, I don't know above and beyond, but uh, psychoanalysts understand this because this is what we're constantly trying to do in our, our work with our patients. Mm. It makes me think of um, in the lead up to the lockdown here in the UK, as people were beginning to demand a lockdown because of how serious things were looking. And um, the government put out this, you know, much criticized herd immunity concept that, you know, we shouldn't lock down too early because we need a certain number of people to get infected. Um, and one of the kind of reasons they gave for it was um, they sort of pulled a concept that they claimed was from their behavioral psychologists that that people would experience lockdown fatigue. And so you shouldn't start the lockdown too early. Um, and of course, you know, I guess psychoanalysis sort of teaches us to be quite skeptical of these sort of ready-made concepts from behavioral psychology. But then it turned out that the behavioral psychologists themselves penned an article saying, we don't have a concept like this of lockdown fatigue. And in fact, we absolutely think the lockdown should have happened earlier. Right. I mean, what does that even mean, lockdown fatigue? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, you know, a lot of, um, I, I bet the sort of nuances of what it's like in the UK versus the US, I mean, the, the strange question here, and this was also written into the article, was this um, obsession that the United States has with freedom, but it's, it's negative freedom, it's freedom against others, it's not, it's not freedom to, it's freedom from. And this kind of hysteria about the tyranny of, um, of, you know, whatever, being told that you can't leave your house or told that you can't buy gardening products or told that you can't get a haircut, um, which is, uh, I don't know. I don't know that I had, I had ever kind of, I mean, I, I, I felt like I, something also changed. I mean, not just this question of eloquence at the end of death, but the question of this American entitlement to freedom, um, I don't know. I really rethought something about that in my own mind. Yeah, that was that was another um, kind of theme that that you discussed um, in the article. Um, but let's let's move on to talk a bit about uh, conversion disorder, which um, is about the body and is uh, you know even more relevant, I suppose, now than probably when you published it in ways I imagine you didn't anticipate. No, no, I didn't anticipate it. <laughs> Um, I, 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 the question of, of the body and feeling unwell and the medical industry and the mental health industry and the way in which this was encroaching on the analytic space was certainly where I began, um, with the question of writing that book. Um, yeah. So how, how did the book come about? I don't know. I think it came about with the title first. I just like the title conversion disorder. I mean, 
so much of my work is is on his, hysteria. Um, I mean, both the two other books are basically on hysteria to a certain extent. So this was just an extension of that. But I I got interested in the idea that hysteria was dropped from the DSM and that conversion disorder was the last traces of it um, kind of left in this attempt to eradicate Freud from the psychiatric Bible. And then um, in looking at Freud's early writings, um, specifically on the term conversion, finding that it, it, it was so rich um, in his descriptions of what he was trying to understand about conversion, even more in a way than the idea of hysteria, especially hysteria as it's translated into Lacanian psychoanalysis, which becomes a kind of bugaboo. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I got, I got interested in this idea of going back to that term and going back to thinking about the way that Freud had written about it, which is basically what he says is it's an aptitude for moving large quantities of psychic excitation from one place to another. Um, and that this was an achievement and it's an achievement that the other forms of neurosis or psychosis aren't able to, um, create. And that's why hysteria slash conversion disorder becomes the um, the kind of model for psychoanalysis and the model of the possibilities for psychoanalysis. Mm. It is surprising that it kind of remains a psychiatric classification because that definition doesn't sound like something that, you know, the authors of the DSM would, would endorse. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, the, but I think, you know, you can't escape when you're talking about whatever mental health, the mental health world, the question of psychosoma. So, you know, it would be really hard for them, I think, to get rid of this. And it's both the beginning of the question of psychiatry um, and it, it it's the question that remains is... Um, this mind-body relationship, which the hysteric is the person who demonstrates it so unbelievably powerfully. So we have these other terms like psychosomatic, and you mentioned also uh, functional neurological disorder. Do, do you think conversion disorder is doing something different from those? I do, because I think that the other ones more readily imply this question of illness, you know, like you have made yourself sick, whereas somehow in the term conversion, which has a religious meaning, it has a chemical meaning, it even has an economic meaning, it's about a change in scale, a change in size, a change in measurement, seems to imply the question that we need to ask, which is fundamentally about change and what constitutes change and what kind of changes are possible. And this amazing capacity for things in a subject to change. <laughs> you can change a memory of trauma into a bodily symptom. You can change a bodily trauma into a psychical symptom. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and so somehow it's present in, in that. I think it, it, that's why I like that, that, you know, this, I couldn't get eradicated. Um, although someone did tell me that the next, they're trying to get rid of it in the next, you know, whatever DSM six, or I don't even know what number we're at now. Um, but we'll see what happens. So we'll have to, we'll have to stage a, a psychoanalytical protest or intervention. I mean, in the book I say like, let them do what they're going to do. Let them, let them, um, 
let them have these this strange classificatory system symptom system <laughs> symptomatic system <laughs> um, you know and let the patients read about it and let them come talk to us it's it's you know this is also important is is the way in which the the world is going to conceive of whatever they want to call mental health and the way it's going to do it. It's not really the psychoanalyst's job to change that, but the psychoanalyst's job is to listen to what effect this is having on the patients, their speech, the unconscious. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you speak about in the introduction, um, I think a very kind of practical clinical problem about how patients come and they're seeking a kind of, uh, you know, biological explanation as well as a sort of biological remedy for their suffering. Um, and I think this is, uh, uh, you know, I'm, as a kind of relatively new clinician, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I feel quite puzzled often about, um, you know, how do you respond to this? And and I'm curious, how do you work with this kind of um, situation when what you're interested in is something a bit different? I mean, this is the the waiting game of the analyst that I assume you're, you know, thinking about and working on, not just in terms of on a societal level, but the analyst waits the patient out and has to have the courage to do so. Because I think, you know, when 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 people come to you and they're suffering and, and they are demanding um, answers and solutions and remedies is the tact of the analyst is to figure out how to not negate what they're saying, not refuse what they're asking for, but to um, keep them talking and interest them in what you're interested in somehow that, that is confusing to them. Uh, And, you know, when you've been doing this work for a while, you have to, you know, remember that that's always there for you is to wait. And it's up to the person to come back. It's, it's a question of their desire. And I, I think patients have enormous desire to um, find someone to listen to them. They just don't know necessarily that that's what they're looking for. You have this bit about um, following the drive. Um, what do you mean by that? Lacan's, I mean, it's a little bit the question of the logical time. Um, But in general, I think the way that Lacan conceives of the drive in Freud is that it's a trajectory that leaves the body and returns to the body. But that it's a difficult trajectory. It's a trajectory that um, has a lot to do with loss, has a lot to do with bodily excitation and suffering has a lot to do with memories and histories that, that in, in this movement of the drive, all of this kind of subjective history is conjured in its wake. And it's a lot of the reason that patients want to short circuit this process. They want to get out of it. And the analyst is trying to help the patient complete it because upon its completion is some satisfaction and maybe some kind of knowledge um, about oneself, but in not letting that trajectory go from <laughs> the time of the glance through the moment of understanding to the, the point of conclusion, um, that we're always stuck in a kind of half place. And his prime example of this is obsessional neurosis. Obsessional neurosis just wants to stay, like if you think of the most uh, obvious symptom of the turning on and off of the stove, 
right? It stays in this action that's not really an action. <laughs> it stays in this kind of compulsive, ritualistic doing and undoing rather than the doing that needs to really be done. Um, and I think this is what he talks about when he talks about the handling of the transference, when he talks about the importance of satisfaction, um, when he talks about the circuit of the drive, when he talks about the loss, the, the kind of the, the circling of the, the object cause of desire, which is always a point of loss that you kind of have to circle this loss and, and, and try to come back to point A again. Um, and and we're in, I mean, what I wanted to say in the book was, was to speak to how the analyst does this and the difficulties of it, because it's something that the patient doesn't want. They want a satisfaction that they're terrified of, um, mm. which would be a kind of particular Lacanian way of putting it. Um, and it, it seems to me that this emphasis is also a way of putting the centrality of the body back into the consulting room. Am, am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, it's a question of putting the body back insofar as we're listening to its presence in speech. And it's not, you know, and this is also to get away from the kind of intellectualized, although I hate that term because it's, it's so anti-intellectual, but um, the the version of psychoanalysis that's so much on the level of the language or the thinking um, as opposed to, and I don't want to go, you know, in the direction of feeling, but I want to go in the level of the body and I want to go um, towards the drive and towards questions of excitation. So I don't want this like feeling versus intellect because this has just been like a horrible standoff. And I think a really unproductive one in analysis. And I think when Freud talks about the drive, he's talking about the two of them together at the very, this very strange way in which they're commingled. Um, I wonder if it does working on zoom now kind of draw any of these issues around the body into more focus. An issue, it's an interesting question because in like in some ways I'm really worried about the loss of the bodies in the room. On the other hand, I see my patient's face. So, I mean, on, when you do Zoom, you really like you see their face. It's, it's a very odd experience. And they have some patients have talked about seeing my face. Because, you know, when you're in the room, you, you do something very different. So in some ways, there's an intensification, but it's an intensification of the face. And a loss of the body in a way that I do feel. I feel a loss of my own body. <laughs> I mean, hours and hours on the phone and Zoom is the strangest experience. It's very, very disembodied. I think one of the things I find really peculiar about it as well, of course, is the fact that <clears throat> as much as you might try and avoid it, your your own image is reflected back to you on the computer screen. Oh, it's horrible. Horrible. It's strange. Um, yeah, and you can't help but look at it in the way that I think the mirror just exerts so much, um, such a powerful draw. So, I mean, I've talked to other analysts and they're trying to put sticky notes on their computers. <laughs> I, mean, I, I really, I try to use the phone more, but now that it's been three months, I, I I'm feeling very strange about not being able to having my patients and I see one another. So it's, it's actually something I just 
recently decided that I had to start thinking about, especially with the August vacation coming up. It just doesn't seem right to have existed as these disembodied voices. Hmm. I mean, so this is a very naive question, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on it. Um, why wouldn't a psychoanalyst utilize techniques like massage that other therapists sometimes advocate? Mm-hmm. I think that the not touching in a way of the other is about an intensification of the presence of the body in language. I mean, I think the the strange ritual of analysis, which is this incredible intimacy and time spent together without touching is important um, because it's also about desire and longing that is becomes really omnipresent and makes something possible. If the patients, you know, I, I, I do all kinds of things. I mean, I go to acupuncture and I'm like a yoga fanatic, but so I think that analysis can make you do something with your body different than when you first went into it. But I don't think that that's the analyst's job. Mm. So in some sense, the body becomes even more present when you're not directly in contact with it. Yes. Yes. And anyone who's, who's, um, you know, had a difficult session with a patient and may have like put their hand on their shoulders. They left, um, knows the provocation that this is not always positive. Um, by the way, I mean, I've had, I think I, I did that once with someone and, um, they accused me of seducing them. It was too much, mm. which wasn't unproductive. It wasn't unproductive to be there and, and have them say that to me and kind of talk, around that moment. But I mean, it's the, it's the carefulness um, that we need to take around touching Mm, with all of the transfer. It it makes me think of um, my supervisor's complaint around zoom was that there wasn't the possibility of an embrace, even though she wouldn't actually kind of indulge in one, but the fact that that wasn't kind of, um, you know, there wasn't, I guess the specter of that somehow had some, you know, effect on the work that she was really unhappy about. Well, that's really moving. I think that's, um, I think that's right. As I said, the, the ending is funny because the patient can end the session or hang up the phone. So all my patients are ending the sessions, which the question of the analyst ending the session, you don't have to be a, you know, five minute Lacanian analyst, but just the fact that you end your 45 minute sessions, you say it's time to stop is very powerful. And, and that's also taken away. Yeah, I found myself kind of ending with a lot more hesitation, like, uh, so we're going to speak again next week, right? That kind of, um, that sense that I don't think I would have if we were meeting in person. Me too. I've been doing that. I say things like, okay, well, we'll speak next week or, you know, um, I even hesitate and let them end it, which I was like, why am I doing this? so weird? (laughs) But I mean, I, I think it's because of the virtuality, like you don't know what you're stopping. You know, you don't, there's no, the goodbye does not feel right. It isn't a real. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, I really enjoyed in this book, um, was the, the chapter on coitus interruptus. Um, <laughs> and I was so glad that you decided to engage with, um, sort of, you know, aspects of Freud that are particularly wacky or very easy to dismiss in terms of his kind of, um, well, his biological explanations for neurosis. Um, so yeah, what were you doing with that kind of 
piece of the book? Such a well-timed question. <laughs> the question of ending um, Zoom sessions, the, the non-coitus interruptus. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I just happened upon this moment in in Lacan. I mean, so much of my thinking I really owe to him in this way um, because he he always surprises me somehow. Um, and so I was reading his seminar on anxiety and he's, he just like, it was just a, a side quip. He says, this is the most brilliant interpretation by Freud, which I, you know, I, I stopped because this is like one of the things that we absolutely dismiss in Freud. I mean, the idea of Freud is that anxiety is caused by coitus interruptus. Um, so condoms or pulling out or not achieving orgasm is like going to, is going to be the root of anxiety. And if Freud even says it's like going to potentially destroy society because it's going to make women hysterical and men more impotent because of hysterical women and everything's going to fall to pieces. (laughs) So this is, you know, this is like the kind of thing that we would dismiss in Freud and Lacan says it's brilliant and then goes on to kind of explain that, um, the problem isn't that you don't achieve an orgasm. The problem, the problem is that it's the moment in which you expect union with the other and the irrevocable fact of our separation is brought to bear when the orgasm isn't achieved. And that this is where we develop symptoms. Mm. And I thought, this is unbelievable. This is, this is totally this is this is just this is such an incredible kind of way that Lacan um, flips Freud on his head, um, or flips the, the the standard reading of Freud rather. Yeah, I mean, when I was working on my dissertation, I kind of um, read into the Freud's theories of the actual neuroses, and I really loved his sort of um, how he was enamored with kind of Felice's idea of the nasal reflex neurosis and this attempt to kind of mark some periodicity to symptoms that was linked to, you know, disorders of the nose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the long kind of nasal <laughs> pathology between Freud and, and fleas is amazing. Of course, ending with the patient who mm. left all the packing tape in her nose and almost killed her. Um, which which was which this guilt that Freud bore in relationship to that moment of medical malpractice um, haunts the interpretation of dreams, jokes in their relation to the unconscious and the psychopathology of everyday life. I mean, recently, I, just because I was working on this in my Lacan class, I just realized how much that haunts it and was also thinking about it, of course, because the death of his daughter from the Spanish uh, influenza became almost a second moment in which the question of the death of a woman in Freud's life or potential death of a woman in Freud's life really starts to change his theories radically. Mm. And I mean, would you say that I think one of the other things I find useful about returning to this part of Freud is that, you know, once again, it forces us to think through what is the relationship of the psyche to the body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think um, I, it's why I really like the, I mean, just the early Freud, the letters is that, um, this, you know, this was Freud just having stopped dissecting eels, right? And Freud just having left um, some of his training in France under Charcot. Um, and, and that the body feels really, really present 
Um, and maybe even his, you know, this is, is some idea of, of Freud before the, the masses of analysts. I know. And the, and the, and the fame. Hmm. Um, we have to speak about the appendix. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let's talk about the appendix. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about the appendix to this book. Um, so I added the appendix uh, during the process of having already turned the book in because I ended up with appendicitis um, and I had my appendix removed. So it felt... Um, like it was the actual conclusion of the book rather than the conclusion of the book that I had written. Um, and I was like, you know, I, I, this is writing books is dangerous. Um, actually after I wrote the article on Lacan and cars, my, the wheels fell off my car. So I, <laughs> I need to stop writing. <laughs> you need to find yeah, much more banal topics to write about at least. My friend Patricia Garavici is trying to find the, the topic for me that won't like cause harm in my life. Um, she can't find it though. She says, there's nothing without jouissance. I don't know what to do for you. Um, so, so in I you know in the book I I I was kind of screwing around with all of these new age self help diet based weirdnesses of the of the world I was just kind of messing around with that world and I I actually ended up giving myself I think in a way appendicitis from having gone on like a cleanse and having seen some voodoo doctor who gave me some like two strong probiotics and like the two um, caused a bacteria storm in me this wonderful job that I did on myself um but I you know I I looked back at the question of the appendix in Freud which is um very central and central in the Dora case I mean it's really the linchpin and it's very beautiful moment because it's not just her it's not just the question of death and the question of pregnancy and what it is to be a woman which is on her mind it's also a question of the localization of the body because the thing with the appendix is that you know it because of that special place that becomes like a, a generalized pain crystallizes and condenses in McBurney's point, right? So all the doctors say, you know, you push on the, whatever, the lower right. And if the patient, you know, is in extreme pain, it's appendicitis. And Dora gets interested in this. She gets interested in this question of the localization and crystallization of the symptom itself. And how nice for a diagnosis to be so straightforward. Right. Right. Absolutely. The, 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 the knowledge which she's searching for, um, which also pregnancy is also a certainty, right? Once one is pregnant, there's a certainty about it um, that she's looking at when she's looking at this painting of the Madonna. Um, so, okay. So I'm a woman, I'm pregnant. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think also in having kind of messed around in this wellness world, it's that it's the search for the body, the search for knowledge, the search for certainty, the search for um, feeling. And did you find yourself implicated in all of this? As an analyst or as a human being in the world? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose as, as both and as an author of the book. I did. I did. Um and I, I thought that that was important to kind of put in there, you know, so that I wasn't, uh, I'm as much in the, the mess as anybody. 
Um, I, you know, I always try to do that because I, I worry about the, the analyst. I mean, transference is transference. It will always exist. You always be put in a very special place just by assuming that position, but also to understand that we're, we're also, we're in it. Um, and we're always working our way out of it. I, I do the, you know, the, the original ending of the book before it became the appendix was the question of the analyst analysis and how you have to lean on that analysis, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, um, there's no once and for all. Hmm. Um, it makes me think of, uh, also these, these questions that Dora had around the growing popularity of artificial intelligence as a kind of diagnostic system. I, I managed to scare my partner who was suffering from back pain into thinking based on artificial intelligence that he had a high likelihood of death from some extremely rare disorder. <laughs> Wait, tell me about the Dora, the artificial intelligence. Well, the, the, I don't know if you've, you've come across, you know, there's this kind of growth of apps that kind of ask you questions about your medical symptoms oh, um, yeah. and then, you know, produce a diagnosis or a probability of a diagnosis at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, of course. Um, and then also just all of the looking up of, of, you know, on WebMD and all of these things that you yeah. can do that you can do now. And, um, that, that this, this kind of question that we have about illness, about the body, about what our bodies are doing. I want to take the very old fashioned Freudian stance that these are sexual questions. This is infantile sexual research. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not, that's not a denunciation of it. It's an extolling of it to say that we still have these questions. We're still looking for something and we're still trying to elaborate something very powerful in ourselves and that we need to be able to do this. Mm. But, so what is the significance of saying that these are sexual questions? What, what's at stake in that idea? For me, what's at stake is the question of elaboration and non-knowledge. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I've been, I'm always asked, um, whenever I kind of am asked to speak about what it means to be a Freudian, like, you know, do I explain everything via sex? And I try to invert that in a way. And I think the book really wants to, to, to kind of speak about this inversion, which is that it's not that sex explains everything. It's that sex wants to, sex is ambiguous and meaning and explanation rush towards the place of the sexual, which is also the body. Mm. And that that's where all of this information is crowding in. And, and, and that we are in a very special moment with the internet, <laughs> you know, where we ask a question and we instantly Google um, and we can't stop. And we like go into these holes of Googling things where information is, 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 is crowding into these, into this space of the sexual question that we have about ourselves. Um, and I, I think that. Do you think it's important in your work ever to have, uh, some ability to catch, uh, the medical aspect of a symptom as in, do you ever feel a responsibility to say, wait a second, actually you need to see, a normal doctor for this one. Sure. Sure. I think I've, I've had that situation with patients where they're trying to explain their symptoms and, and, um, you ask them to go to a doctor. Absolutely. Because it's not, it's not so much that you believe or you know that it's a bodily problem, but you say, you know, there is 
someone who you need to go start doing some work on this. Um, you know, I have had patients mm. with, um, you know, especially hysterical patients, whatever that means, um, you know, with all kinds of questions about their reproductive systems and, and all kinds of answers about it, all kinds that are very fantastical. And, um, you know, you say, have you gone to a doctor to check whether you're ovulating? Mm. Have you gone to a doctor to check whether you have endometriosis? It's interesting. It makes me think of it's, you know, there's that, there's that saying about, um, uh, you can be, uh, your partner can be cheating on you and you can still be a paranoiac. It's kind of the same thing with illness, isn't it? Like you can have all kinds of, uh, neurotic fantasies about an illness and you can still also need to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's, you're always with a patient kind of understanding whether the person who's always at the doctor so that you don't need to tell them to go to the doctor, but you also have to understand that there's certain people who are very afraid to go to the doctor and want to stay with the checking on it themselves and their fantasies about it. And I, I do, I mean, I think that these are, these are the moments in which the analyst has to act. And, you know, again, just to go back to the logical time question, the, this moment in which you act on behalf of either the unconscious or on behalf of the patient's need to act um, are important moments. But, you know, you, you have to be very careful. It's the same with the touching, with the goodbye, with the, any of these things, you can't, you can't just willy nilly tell someone to go to the doctor. You have to, um, make sure that, that you've allowed a lot to be said about it before you just rush in. And it, it may lead to the removal of an appendix. And it may, it, and it may lead to the removal of an appendix. <laughs> I think I've called my analyst. I said, um, I think I have appendicitis and I'm, I'm going to miss my session today. <laughs> <laughs> And then she said, um, I think when I came back after the surgery, she said, uh, I'm glad you figured out how to take care of yourself. <laughs> uh, well, Jameson, we're almost out of time. Um, just before we finish, I want to ask, um, what, what are you working on now? And I suppose related to that, what, what kind of tragedy might befall you as a result? My goodness. I don't know. I'm so I'm, I'm, um, finishing a book that I'm writing with a colleague, uh, Marcus Colin on, on Lacan. Um, and we have done readings of, I, I think like 18 of the 28 seminars that we've broken into pieces. Um, and that in between the pieces, it becomes a kind of auto fictional letter epistolary, um, but also case studies and conversations that we have about what it means to be analysts, which is he and I have been speaking about that together for years. Um, and so it's a, it's a way of reading Lacan with hopefully the question of Lacan as an analyst and us as analysts um, guiding, I guess, the difficult process of reading him. I don't know what's going to happen to me. I don't even want to guess <laughs> because I will make it happen if I if I start guessing about it. My problem. Well, I hope this time you'll be spared. Um, Jameson, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you today. Yeah, you too. Thank you, Jordan. <laughs>